Well, good morning. Happy Lord's Day, church, to you all. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Uh, my name is Dave Lundberg. If you're new here, I'm a deacon here at GCF and uh, really blessed to be able to get to share the word of God while Jeff is out um, away with spending time with his son. So praise God that he's able to do that and take a break. And uh, it's truly an honor for me to be able to come up here and preach this morning on a topic that I am extremely passionate about. So excited for that. As you know, we've been going through the book of Mark. We're going to take a break uh, for the summer in that. We're going to go into Psalms moving forward. But we had baptisms last week. And then we're going to finish off a little two-part series today with, with me. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 2. Verses 37 through 47. Uh, this sermon is not going to be a verse-by-verse verse type of sermon, so there's going to be a lot of scripture we're going through this morning. So shortly after, um, we'll have a slide up that's going to show you all the chapters basically I'll be in if you guys want to dog-ear those for f- uh, future when I bring them up. Or you can just read them on the board as they come up. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. Please pray with me one more time. Uh, Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. Lord, it truly is the power we need to grow. It's the power we need to be saved from corruption and sin that's in our hearts. And Lord, for this message this morning, I pray that it would land in the ears of my brothers and sisters the way you want it to land. God, our country is in desperate need of true church community true fellowship, true generosity, true service. God, I just pray that you would preserve this in us here at GCF this morning. I'm confident in your Holy Spirit to do the work that it needs to do. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Last week, we did get the blessing to be able to witness several baptisms and Jeff highlighted that baptism is really a public declaration of our allegiance to Christ, right? As we symbolically die to our old selves and rise to new life in Christ. And I know this was a blessing to many. I heard so many positive things about service last week. 
And I couldn't stop thinking what a blessing it was to hear a biblical sermon on baptism because there seems to be so much confusion today in the American church on what baptism is and what it does, what it means. And I'm not talking so much about the long-standing theological uh, debates regarding baptism. I'm talking about how baptism is viewed and practiced in the American church, especially amongst the youth today. And I did a lot of youth ministry back in the day, a lot, and uh, attended a lot of summer camps where several teens would make a decision to get baptized along with all their friends in a gorgeous lake with a gorgeous backdrop of the mountains, which fortunately just so happened to have a professional camera crew on hand to capture the moment and post it on social media. And this experience left such a lasting impression on these teens that they would want to get baptized all over again the next year at camp. And they did. I knew one young lady who got baptized at least three times out of the five years uh, that she was in youth ministry. I remember one night my wife asking a teen that she knew very well, why did you get baptized a couple years ago? And she simply looked at her and said, you know, I'm not really sure. I guess I just did it because my friends did it. Well, hopefully everyone in, in this room last week was able to get a refresher on what baptism is and understand its biblical significance. It's very important. But there's another often misunderstood facet of baptism that I'm going to highlight here this morning. And it's answering the question, what happens next? Right? When one gets baptized, what's the next step? If there is any. Well, simple Google search asking the question, what is baptism, revealed to me how much the American church is drifting from what the Bible teaches about baptism and what was modeled in the early church. For example, one article I came across was titled, Four Things to Do After You Get Baptized, and this was from a church. Now, to be clear, I'm not sharing this to slam the church or to say it's heresy. I mean, a lot of what they say has some good, good wisdom in there. But I believe this article serves more as an example of how individualized Christianity is becoming as the importance of the local church is kind of being tossed to the side. So here are four things this article suggests a Christian do after they get baptized. Step one, look in the mirror. They know that this is first on the list because it's the most important step. They want you to look in the mirror every day and tell yourself how much God loves you. Say it over and over and over and over until you believe it because you are different now. And your life has changed. Step two, squat up. Not squat up, squat up. I was like, man, got to do squats after you get baptized? <laughs> they say after you finish talking to yourself, you're going to need to find some other people to talk to because that's what Jesus did. They mention how you can't follow Jesus alone, amen. They stress the importance of community, amen. But then it goes on to say, all the things that community can do for you. You need people who will support you, who will ask you hard questions, who will laugh with you, who will push you in the right direction, who will pray with you, who will meet you for chips and margaritas just to catch up, who will help pay your rent if you come up short, and who will help the kids and who can come to you if their life goes sideways. Step number three, go to school. This article goes on to say that you need to go to school, which they later define as a fun and interactive school. It's not like the boring school that we're thinking of with pop quizzes. Oh, no. This is a school that's interactive because as a disciple, you're now a life learner of Jesus, meaning 
you notice the things that he did, and then you try them on for size in your own life. So going to school is learning what Jesus did in the Bible and then practicing them in your own life. And then the last step here, step four, practice Simon says. This essentially encourages the believer to practice hearing from the Holy Spirit and better responding to the Spirit's promptings. And they say, the better you get at responding to the Spirit's promptings, the more fruitful and incredible your life will be. So according to this article, the four steps that you should take after getting baptized are to look in the mirror, squat up, go to school, and practice Simon Says. Now I know the writer here is using a little tongue-in-cheek, I get it, but did you happen to catch any key point missing from this? It rhymes with Lurch. Think Uncle Lurch. <laughs> Where was any mention of the local church? I did do a word count. I had to. This article had 2,500 words and not one of them included the word church. And brothers and sisters, this, this saddens me. I'm deeply greed by how overlooked the church is becoming today in our culture. It, it, the church just seems to be considered more of an optional spectator event or maybe a corporate community center for people to come and consume rather than to serve and belong to. And it's sad because aside from Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the church is one of the greatest mercies and gifts that God has given us in this lifetime. Yet it's underrated, it's challenged, it's overlooked, it's pushed back on by professing believers? Now, don't get me wrong. I'll never miss a chance to meet with any of you over chips and margaritas. We can do that today if you want. <laughs> but I want to do life with you in the local church more than that. I want to see you committed to the local church. I want you to be in my home group. Scratch that. I want you to be in Mike Mosbeck's home group. I want to worship and serve alongside of you. I want to learn with you, and I want to sharpen one another under the preaching of God's word. And I want to make disciples and proclaim the gospel together. You see, this is the reason why baptism is not meant to be a private event, as Jeff talked about last week. It's supposed to be public. And I would even take it one step further and say it's supposed to be public in front of your church family, because that is who you are to start doing this new life with. So this is our main takeaway this morning, that after a Christian is baptized, they are to be committed to the local church. After a Christian is baptized, they are to be committed to the local church. Now, it's important to consider that the preaching of the gospel was never meant to make individual isolated Christians. Rather, it's meant to call people into fellowship with the church family. Do you get that? The preaching of the gospel is not meant to make these individual isolated Christians. It's meant to call people into fellowship, into the church family. This phrase, having a personal relationship with, with Christ, has become very popular today. And it's kind of muddied the waters with how Christians view the church. You may hear Christians who don't often attend church or maybe don't regularly attend church saying something like, you know, church really isn't my thing. I don't have time for it, but that's okay because I have a personal relationship with Christ. Well, while that is a very real truth, we do have a personal and intimate relationship with Christ. This truth can be stretched too far into thinking that a personal relationship equates to private faith. 
Your personal relationship now means that you have a private faith with just you and God. But this private or individualistic faith is exactly opposite of what we see in the scriptures. So we know this can't be true. I mean, think about the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament is a display of corporate community, of God's people who are communally living together, doing life together. And then we look at the New Testament, which reiterates over and over that a personal relationship with Jesus is non-existent apart from a local community of believers. One of the clearest examples of this is found in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul likens Christians to being one body with many members. And he stresses the point that these members are supposed to be attached to the body. (laughs) As we know, all of our body members are supposed to be attached, right? They're not supposed to be apart from us. So look with me here at 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to read through uh, 12 through 14, and then I'm going to jump to 26 and 27. And it will be up on the, uh, the board here. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Jump to verse 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So fam, God's intention of saving you isn't so you can just have a private relationship with him. It's to adopt you, to bring you into a corporate body of believers, his family with whom you are to fellowship with and be committed to in this new life of yours. Our faith in Jesus is public. It's not private. It's communal, not individualistic. On this one theologian says, individualism betrays the very heart of the gospel. Get this, for Jesus did not die to rescue isolated individuals. He died to create the church. So when you identify with Christ through baptism, you're also identifying as a new member of God's family. But there is a problem, and it's called individualism, right? Individualism is something that lurks inside all of us, and it can be problematic as it has unfortunately crept into the church. As we know today, a culture is plagued with individualism, where so many seem to stress the needs of themselves over the needs of a holistic group, right? They're the king, and everything must be catered specifically to them and their individual needs, This is my lane on the freeway, so you better not drive slow in it. This is my toilet paper, so you better believe I'm taking the whole shelf. Oh, did we see some effects of individualism during COVID, didn't we? (laughs) This is what I want to identify as, so you better acknowledge it. This is how I want to live my life, so you better celebrate it. This is my body, so I get to decide what I want to do with the helpless life that's inside of it. See, it's my need before yours. It's my time before yours. It's my safety over yours. It's my voice over yours. And it's my preference over yours. When one stresses the needs of themselves, it leaves little to no room of giving of themselves to others. It leaves no room for true vulnerability, no true sacrifice, and you're unable to commit. 
And beloved, these are the very characteristics that are supposed to separate the Christian from the world, right? Christians are to give themselves to others. We're, we're to be vulnerable with each other, to sacrifice on behalf of others. And we're supposed to commit to the church and each other. But here's where it gets challenging. See, as believers, we're, we're exiting a life that all it knows is individualistic tendencies. And we're moving into a new life that's meant to be shared with a corporate body of believers. This is always going to come with baggage, right? It's like that first poor child that has to go through processes of grieving and sadness because they find out they have a, a new brother or sister. And they have to share their toys and their snacks. That's my mom and dad. I don't want to share them with you. Well, coming into a Christian community while having these private individualistic habits is going to cause issues. And there's a reason why so many churches struggle with the very same things where individualism is the culprit. Things like church attendance. Do you realize that today there are still churches struggling to get their people back in seats on a Sunday post-COVID? Turns out that offering a robust virtual church environment is kind of a double-edged sword because people can do church at home in their sweatpants and it's awesome. It's comfortable. And they love it. They don't want to go back. Likewise, the demand for having church on a weeknight is getting pretty popular because Sundays are becoming very inconvenient for Christians. Things like sports and lakes get in the way. Things like home group attendance. You know, that's just another night we got to give to the church. And it can contain hard discussions, requires lots of listening, vulnerability, and giving of oneself. And then you look at things like giving and serving. Those are huge issues that churches commonly share. So this is my challenge to you this morning, brothers and sisters. Where might individualism be getting in the way of your commitment to the local church? What areas really seem to make you grit your teeth or struggle to commit to? As a home group leader, I confess, this is confession time with Dave now. <laughs> uh, there's been several nights where I was not looking forward to having 24 people come to my home. and wish I could just go downstairs in the basement and just hide away. In fact, I've been caught telling my wife that, you know, this is the downside of leading a home group. That when you want to ditch, you're the one hosting it. <laughs> so doesn't really work well for you. I was joking that, sorry, home group people. <laughs> I was telling my wife how funny it would be if one night we just turned all the lights off in the house and put a clothes sign on the door and just watch them, you know, come up and kind of look around like, what? What's going on? <laughs> but you know what? It seems like every single night that I start off with a negative attitude like that, I end up being so blessed by home group after. I feel ashamed almost. And then I'm reminded that I'm an adopted member within this body of Christ, right? They, they need me, and I need them. And it brings glory to God when we meet together as one. So instead of looking in the mirror, squatting up, going to school, and playing Simon Says, I think there's some clearer, maybe more biblical steps that I can offer this morning. Namely, that after a Christian is baptized, they are to be committed to the local church. And I'll cover three points that further explain these next steps of what commitment to the church looks like. Step one, commit yourself to fellowship. Commit yourself to fellowship. Let's read Acts 2, 37 through 42, and then I'll jump to verse 46. 
So Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 42. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to breaking of the bread and prayers. Let's jump to verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, fellowship is often misunderstood as Christians just simply hanging out with one another. You know, maybe having a barbecue or watching the game, having a brief discussion in the fellowship hall. But in verse 41, we see that those who received the word, they were baptized, and then it says they were added. Well, added to what? They were added to the church. They were added to the, to the church after they were baptized. So we're on the right track here. But then it goes on to say that they devoted themselves to the teaching of God's word, to fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And this isn't meant to be taken as something that just happened that day. Like all this miraculous stuff just happened in one day and they all kind of hung out. They had a meal together and then they went on with their lives and that was it. No, fam, this was an ongoing commitment. This was a new way of living life. When you are saved and you become a Christian, you have a new way to live life. Other texts help provide support of this as we see in Hebrews chapter 10. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So after baptism, these believers committed themselves to fellowship with this new family of theirs. They prayed together, they ate together, and they learned together. And this was ongoing. So what exactly is fellowship? Our very own Rondi DeBoer recently spoke on this at a Ladies of Grace night. She did a fantastic job, so I'm going to steal her definition. As she, uh, she studied a lot of books that basically broke down the Greek word for fellowship, which is koinonia. And she came up with a great de uh, definition based on this core truth that all these books shared. If you're wondering, by the way, what I was doing at Ladies of Grace, we'll talk after. <laughs> I just realized how awkward that sounded. <laughs> I was helping to run sound, but they have really good snacks. <laughs> so here's a biblical definition of fellowship. Fellowship is a sharing of the Christian life together. Sharing of the Christian life together. She went on to say, fellowship is real. It's practical. It's close. It's transparent. It is honest. It is personal. It is sacrificial. And it is immensely rewarding in scripture. And this is the kind of fellowship believers in the Bible dedicated themselves to. So church, this is the fellowship that we are to have with one another here at GCF. We're to sit under the preaching of God's word together like we're doing this morning. We share the gospel together. We make disciples together. 
We pray together. We give together. We laugh together. We sing together. We suffer together. We grieve together. We mourn together. And we grow in holiness together. As born-again believers, we have a responsibility to one another because of what God has graciously done for us. Don't let individualism rob you of that truth. See, we're all interwoven into the fabric of Christ. We all share Christ, and we're one body with many members where he is the head. So maybe this is news to you, or maybe this has kind of fallen off the radar due to individualistic habits that have been creeping in. You know, you, you know you're sort of been drifting inward lately. You want to attend church when it's convenient. Maybe just shake a few hands while you're there, and the minute service is over, you're going to bolt out those doors and continue to live life for yourself that week. Unfortunately, this is not uncommon for Christians today to neglect their church. They'd rather invest in things like their career, hobbies, kids' sports, or just hang out with other acquaintances. And dear brother or sister, know that this is not the way a Christian is to live because after they've been baptized, they don't just simply go to church. They're supposed to be the church. So commit yourselves to fellowship. Share your life with us. So commit yourself to fellowship. Our second point is commit yourself to generosity. Commit yourself to generosity. While fellowship is sharing of the Christian life together, another key element of committing to the local church is sharing your resources. Being generous with that which God has given to you. Now something that is interesting and albeit uncomfortable to ponder is, did all your assets, everything that you own today, did it come from your hand or are they given to you by God? If, like me, you want to play it safe and say, well, both. Well, then there's another question. Well, then who ultimately has ownership of them? Whose are they? Are they yours or are they God's? A pastor from my last church would always challenge me with this quote. He'd say, it's not about how much of your money you give to God, but how much of God's money you keep for yourself. It's not about how much of your money you give to God, but how much of God's money you keep for yourself. Interesting perspective there. But there are many, many differing views on what generosity looks like from the world to the church. But the Bible does have a lot to say about it. So let's take a look back in Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 43 through 45, and then I'm going to jump to verse, uh, chapter 4. So Acts chapter 2, verses 43 through 45. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Jump to Acts chapter 4, uh, verse 32 through 35. Chapter 4, 32 through 35. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. 
Now, these verses have caused a great deal of controversy by being misunderstood as some sort of Christian socialism. They've been taught that way by false teachers. But here's, here's what's taking place in these passages. It's not a forced type of giving or an involuntary act of giving. It's not even a required giving. No, it's a display of joyful giving from a heart that overflows with gratitude and love for God and his church. It's a beautiful picture of biblical generosity. See, it's important to note that where it says they had all things in common in both these sections, it doesn't mean that they kind of parceled people into groups with common interests. Like, here's the group that all love the color purple, and then here's the group who love this uh, sports team. No, it means they operated for more of a what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine kind of mindset. Having all things in common means they shared their resources with any who had needs so that none would be without just as a family would do, well, except for my family when there's leftover pizza or ice cream. We don't, really, we don't really share those very well, but there's hope. So biblical generosity is ultimately, it's a fruit of our salvation. Think of it that way. It reveals the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It proves that our love is genuine, and it proves that we understand the gospel. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verses 7 through 9. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul's telling them to excel in being generous to the church. He goes on to say in verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, here comes the gospel, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. See, when you understand this gospel truth, you want to emulate this by giving to others. So this isn't some type of Christian socialism. Christians still lived in and owned their own homes. They still had possessions that they owned. No, what it is is a response. Biblical generosity is a response to grace. It's a response to the gospel changing them, giving them a new life and a new family to share it with. One commentator explains, grace without giving is fraudulent, and it's no real grace at all. Giving without grace is moralistic do-goodism, and it only makes cranky Christians crankier. But when the grace of God and the gospel, which is outrageous and undeserved, in defiance of what we most deeply deserve, when it comes washing into our hearts, our clenched hands soften, and we are released into the joy of generosity. I work in big tech, and right after the new year, I had received news that they're going to cut about 10 to 14 percent of our of our workforce, and. You know, it was all over the news. A lot of big tech companies were doing that. And, of course, anytime you hear this sort of news, you immediately, you know, it's like, oh, that's going to be me, honey. We're going to lose our job. It's going to be crazy. And uh, one evening I ended up running into another brother who attends GCF Central. And we hugged, and he immediately asked about my job because it was in the news, and he knew where I worked. And he, and he looked at me with this weird look, like just straight in the face. I don't think I've ever seen this serious of a look on his face. And he said, Dave, you let me know if anything happens to you because I will help you. And, you know, I kind of laughed it off and was like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Thanks. And he goes, no. 
And he looks at me again like, Dave, I'm not playing with you. You let me know. You keep me updated. Please. Because I'm here for you. And I'll tell you what, man, there's something about that that really stuck with me. I mean, I was stressed and my home group was awesome. We were praying about it. But it was that one moment that gave me this peace that if the worst case scenario happened, if I was to lose my job, I would be covered and well taken care of by my church family. And that's the way it's supposed to be. And I am blown away at how generous this church is. We would not be in this building today if it wasn't for the generosity of the saints here. We wouldn't have the staff that we have that keep this place running and functioning. We wouldn't have the ability to be generous to our missionaries if it wasn't for your generosity. We wouldn't be able to have egg burritos at men's prayer. That's a big one. See, investing in the family that God has called you to with the resources he has graciously and generously given to you is a wonderful response and display of the gospel. And remember that generosity comes in all shapes and sizes, right? It's not just monetary. It's being generous with your time and your talents. And this will take us to our third point. So commit to fellowship, commit to generosity, and commit yourself to serving. Commit yourself to serving. When you were saved and baptized, not only were you brought into a new family, but in the words of the great theologian Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> now hear me out. You were given great skills. That's all I got. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that each Christian is provided spiritual gifts or skills. But they're given for a purpose, so this can't be missed. This is a very important aspect when it comes to the spiritual gifts. They are given to the Christian so that, so that why? They can be used to edify the church. Look with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. The common good here signifies for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12 says, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, since you are eager for spiritual gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. So God disperses gifts to every believer to help lead the church towards greater maturity, to edify it. This word used for edification in the New Testament is oikodome. and essentially means the building of a house. Isn't that a cool picture? Edification means the building of a house. So think of it as building or enhancing a, a type of stronghold in a very positive light. What a great display that shows the Christian's active role within the church. I think so many times the church is seen today as an institution where only the pastors are the ones who dictate the strength and the health of the church. Right? I mean, they plan all the programs. They plan all the services. Then Christians just show up. On a Sunday, they consume, they give their critiques, which you're really good at, and then they go off the next week and do it all again. Now, Ephesians 4, it does tell us that God does gift the church with shepherds and teachers to build up the body. But then it goes on to include all of you, everyone else. Every member of the body plays a part in edifying the church with their gifts. 
Let's look at that. Let's look at Ephesians 4, uh, 11 through 12, and then I'm going to hop to 15 and 16. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Okay, so here Paul's highlighting the church leader's role in edifying the church. So check out this next section, verses 15 and 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, for whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, this is a metaphor for all believers, with which it, the body, is equipped. When each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When your pastors, who are members of the body, are properly using their gifts, it fosters a healthy church. When church members, who are parts of the body, are properly using their gifts, it fosters a healthy church. But one cannot happen independently from the other and still foster a healthy church. Members need healthy pastors. And pastors need healthy members. This is known as mutual edification. Mutual edification. On this one commentator writes, the concept of edification in the New Testament is applied to the corporate body by way of mutual edification. Mutual edification involves helping one another along the road to Christ-likeness. And it requires the participation of all members of the church. Christ-like service ensures that the needs of the church are met. And true fellowship is the interaction we have with each other on a deeper spiritual level. So get this. The corporate nature of edification cannot be overemphasized. Without mutual edification, the church becomes a collection of spiritual weaklings, a perpetual nursery for spiritual infants rather than a body or building. Ouch. Without mutual edification, without the members of the church using their gifts, as well as the pastors using their gifts, without this happening, the church becomes a collection of spiritual weaklings, a perpetual nursery for spiritual infants rather than a, a body or a building. So despite what seems to be popular belief today, the church is not an institution providing services only for Christians to consume. It's a corporate body where everyone collectively uses these gifts to help build the house. Worship is a great example of this, of why we do worship when it is so bright in here. Have you ever noticed that? We have these big, beautiful windows. All the lights are on. It's because we want to see each other when we're worshiping God. And there's a reason why our, our music is pretty standard. I was very careful with my words there. <laughs> we have great worship. But we want to keep it standard because we don't want the perception that we're here to entertain you with a concert. This is why we do worship the way we do, church. Because we're all here together to sing to our God. We want to see each other. And we want to hear each other. See, every single one of you plays an active and important role here at GCF. You have been given gifts to be a huge blessing to this church. Are you using them? There's so many amazing spiritual gifts and God-given abilities sitting in this room today. And I wrote down a handful as I was thinking about this. But there's so many more. There's administrative skills, handyman skills, teaching, time management, finances, connecting with children, engaging teenagers, musical, praying, leadership, cooking, 
technology, counseling, medical, legal. Trevor, I put that one in for you. Defensive, nurturing, hospitality, event planning. There's so many more. See, our pastors need you just as much as you think you need them in order to grow our home to spiritual maturity. So church, beware of this individualistic mindset that can creep in that says the church only exists to serve your needs when you want it. Or this mindset that the church, you know, just really isn't that important. It doesn't need to be a priority. I have other things that are more important in my life right now. A great illustration of mutual edification that I'm talking about is found in the older Roman or Gothic archways. Have you ever looked at an archway made of stone or brick and wonder, like, how is this held up? Yeah, I put a picture up here. Well, these archways became very popular to use for things like entryways into buildings, tunnels. Then they became to be used for large bridges. Um, and this was because they were known for their strength and stability. They were super strong. And this is because each individual stone that makes it up plays a part in sharing the load that ultimately supports the whole archway. See, each stone leans on the one beside it, and the more stones that are involved, the longer and stronger this archway can become. But here's the kicker. Every arch needs what's known as a keystone. This keystone, if it wasn't in place, the entire thing would collapse. So it doesn't matter how many stones you had, if you didn't have this keystone, it wouldn't work. So it's safe to say that this keystone, it plays the most important role because it essentially supports the entire archway. As a center stone, it takes on the most weight. It has to bear the most weight. And then it kind of processes it evenly down, uh, and, uh, distributes it down to the other stones so that they're not crushed under this weight that they're not able to bear. And what a beautiful illustration of the church body in this mutual edification. You know, each of us, members of the church, are like these stones, and the health of our church relies on us functioning together as a family. We all play a part. But at the end of the day, we would be nothing. We would collapse if Christ did not take the place as our keystone. Right? He's the center of everything. Christ is the reason we have the church. And this is why the scriptures identify him as the head of this corporate body. See, he took the hardest job that nobody else could. Only he could bear the full weight of God's wrath. Not one of us could accomplish that. But he did it with a true commitment to God and his church. He absorbed the full wrath of God so we didn't have to. And now as a result, we get to rest under this finished work with the guarantee that we'll never be crushed. And not only are we not going to be crushed, but we're now accepted. Right? We're brought in and added to this beautiful church family. The keystone is in place, and now we are being joined together as Christ continues to build his church. What a beautiful picture. Now, if you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're missing this keystone. And this is important. It doesn't matter how many people are in your community, in your group, how much you're leaning on each other, you will collapse without this keystone. See, desire for community is something that all humanity craves. Everybody wants community. You see people searching all over it in things like social media groups, friend groups, book clubs, gym memberships. And while these communities can bring fulfillment, they can bring joy, 
it can only last so long, right? Like filling up a bucket full of holes. You just never will be able to top it off permanently. And this is because there's no keystone in place. It's inevitable. You're left to leaning on each other in sin that's tainted with this individualism that we've been talking about, which inevitably sours the relationship. See, true and everlasting community, and the only community you ever need is only found in Christ's church. Only found in Christ's church. So turn to him this morning and repent of your sins and commit yourself to him, and he will bring you into this family. To you saints here this morning, realize that church is a gift from God. And it's my prayer that if you have lost sight of this, that's okay. Be reminded after today. It's never a bad idea to run a self-assessment in your heart, right? Of where is, where is this individualism getting in the way of my commitment to my family and what God has saved me to? Your flesh is going to want to isolate. It's going to want to go back to the old way of life I don't need a family. I don't need church. I'm good. God and I are good. I have my personal relationship. Don't let those lies creep in. Don't neglect our church by holding back fellowship and generosity and serving. We need you. So if you're a baptized believer, this is your family now. You belong here. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's end by reading this beautiful truth from Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. I love this one. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. This may be one you want to just write down somewhere in your house. It's just a great reminder of what we've been called to. I'm sorry, it's chapter 2, verses 9. Oh, no, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So after a Christian is baptized, they are to be committed to the local church, committed to fellowship, committed to generosity, and to committed to serving. So those of you who were baptized last week, Connor, Rebecca, Ella, Grace, Judah, Chad, and Jenna, we pray that you will take these next steps and welcome to the church family. We're so excited and looking forward to sharing life together with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this family. I'm just so grateful. So grateful for what you've done. Our, if, if, if our salvation just wasn't enough, which it is, it's plenty. There's so much more that you, you give. And I just pray that for my brothers and sisters here this morning, that you would ingrain this deep into their heart. God, we know families are messy. Families are stressful, they're hard, but they're such a blessing. And Lord, I just pray that you would build up GCF to be a family that glorifies you, that has this fellowship. You can open up our hands to be generous and help us to serve. And God, I do pray specifically for 
my brothers and sisters that have been serving for so long that are maybe worn out, that are exhausted or frustrated, thank you for their service. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. If they need breaks, God, give them that wisdom to take them without guilt or conviction. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.